0: All right, well, good morning again. It's good to see all of you, and thank you for uh, your singing uh, and for the happy birthday wishes. Um, John was—that was a little bit of payback because I got on him a couple months ago for turning 40, and so—but I do appreciate it um, very, very much. If you are a first-time guest to Providence today, uh, my name is Joe. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are so glad that you're here with us, so welcome um, crazy weather outside, all, like all the seasons yesterday, from 60 to like 20 is today. Um, it was crazy, but glad that you are here this morning. And we're going to be uh, ending a four-week hiatus from our series through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Getting back into that series, and in particular today we're going to be in Second Samuel chapter 15. And we're going to be talking a little bit about ambition. Ambition. And Dictionary.com defines ambition like this. An earnest desire for some type of achievement or distinction, such as power, honor, fame, or wealth, and the willingness to strive for its attainment. And so listen, achieving great things for God And his glory, that's what we want to be about. We want to be all about achieving, you know, things for his glory, his distinction, his honor, his fame. This is why you and I exist. This is why we were created. We were created for for this. And so providence, the way we put it is we exist to worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. We were created for his worship. We were created for his glory and to bring him glory. The problem is that so often instead of living with a holy ambition for God's glory in his kingdom, we live with a selfish ambition for our glory and our own kingdom. If we plug it back into the definition I just read, it would be an earnest desire for some type of achievement or distinction for ourselves, such as power, honor, fame, or wealth, and the willingness to strive for its attainment for ourselves. And friends, this is the story of 2 Samuel 15. Context here, what's going on is uh, King David and his oldest remaining son, Absalom, they have some serious beef with one another, a major leak. If you go back, if you read uh, a little bit in chapters 12 through, you would see some of what's going on, but they've got some major, major beef with one another. David's done some awful things and Absalom's done some awful things. And after not seeing each other for five years, you come to the end of chapter 14 and they meet. And for David's part, at least, it looks like truly there's forgiveness. They've made amends. But for Absalom, he's just going through the motions. Because he... Like like as he sat separated from his father over those five years, he moved from something that that began with a right impulse, a defense of his sister, right, to a place where he wants to mount a coup, murder his father and take the throne for his own. Selfish ambition has overtaken him. But he doesn't do it by like raging out, but by cold Calculating, patient, political, and deceptive maneuvering—we might call it some strategery. And so, let's first kind of get a grip on what this selfish ambition, like that he has, looks like, and then we'll pull out of that a little bit and, 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 and chat. And so, let's look at it together. Chapter fifteen, Second Samuel. If you don't have a Bible, there's one around you. It's page 266 in the ones that are in the backs of the chairs. Page 266, 2 Samuel chapter 15. After this, this is after they seem to have made amends, to have apologized to one another, at least David did. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And so he's, he's gathering an entourage. He's getting a crew together to, to make him known. To, to, to make people say, wow, who's that guy? What is, what is he doing? He wants this praise. He wants this recognition. And so his selfish ambition, again, definition for power, for honor, for fame, is driving him t- towards this. And he will do whatever it takes to achieve his idol. Which is this fame? Which is this recognition? Because that's what he loves. That's what he wants more than anything. He wants his own kingdom. And beyond passing platitudes, he doesn't give a rip. I mean, he'll, he'll, give, he'll say the words, but he doesn't give a rip about God's kingdom. And so verse 2. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. He's acting like a king here. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And, then when, and when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, your, see, your claims are good and they are right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Like the king was supposed to hear him, but he is completely just undercutting here. I mean, this is straight, he's straight up lying here. Working for his own political gain. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, He would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And so Absalom, he never met a plaintiff with whom he didn't agree, right? Very political here. He's just working the game, and he would he would hear them, and he would sympathize with them, and he'd be like, "Oh, if if I were judged, I'd do this and I'd do this." So he's just completely undermining, just trying to get people to be against not only King David, but God Himself, because for all King David's warts, he is God's chosen king. Second Samuel seven. He's a man after. God's own heart. And so to undercut him, Absalom told them what they wanted to hear. In verse 5, he literally was a kiss up. He would act all humble and defer and kiss the people. Trying to show like a politician donning work boots and a John Deere hat and putting his foot up on a fence rail. And a farmer, you know, I'm, I'm just like you. I'm just like, I'm just like you. I hear you. Completely, never, never set foot on a farm in his life, right? Just playing the game, doing what it does to try to get people to prefer him or, or, or become unsatisfied with David. And it worked. It worked. Verse 6, he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. But he didn't do it overnight. I mean, if we can say anything about Absalom, we can say that he's patient and calculating. He waited two years to murder a guy one time, setting that all up. And now you're going to see he's, he works this little game he's playing for four years before his next move. Look at verse 7. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, so just completely deceptive here, he's going to play him. Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron for your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying. If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Okay, all this is a fabrication. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Look at this, verse 10. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, when Absalom is... As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence, not, they knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And so Absalom's coup has apparently won the day, right? The whole rest of the chapter we're not going to read today is all about David fleeing from Jerusalem before Absalom has him killed. So it's, it's won the day. But if we could kind of pull out of the weeds and out of the details of this story for a moment, it, it just kind of get an overview of what's going on here, I want you to think about and look at what's driving him. Like What is his driving motivation here? It's the same, I mean, we've, we've already hit on a little bit, but it's the same thing that so often, if we could be honest, drives us. Absalom's driving ambition, okay, selfish ambition, was to build a name for himself, not a name for God. It was to build his own kingdom, not God's kingdom. He wanted what he wanted. Not what God wanted for him. And like we so often do. He lived for himself. And not for God. And friend anytime God's people. Live for themselves. Rather than living under the good reign of our Lord Jesus. Things go bad. And we'll see that with Absalom next week. But what I want to do this week is really just kind of some self-examination in light of Absalom's selfish ambition. Because I think there's two things in what we've read thus far that kind of stand out in this text as kind of markers of selfish ambition. Markers of someone who lives with selfish ambition. And so what I want to do is I want to, one, point them out to you. And then two, I want us to weigh them against our own hearts. And I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. And open our eyes to any of this that's true in our own lives. And lead us to repentance. And change. So that we might glorify God And as we'll get into in a little bit, find joy as well in our own lives. Those things go together. And so number one in your notes, okay, some markers of selfish ambition. The first one is this. People who live with selfish ambition use others as tools. People who live with selfish ambition use others as tools, like back in verses 1 through 6, he's sitting at the city gate. He's listening to the people's problems. And he's being all understanding. He's being all sympathetic. And then like, oh, if I, if I was just king, I could help you. But listen, he does not give a flip about their concerns. Just what they can give him. Power. If he can convince them. He has no concern that these are real people... Coming with real problems they need adjudicated and help with, and he's just seeing them as a means to an end, as a voting block. They're castaway tools, tools that he will use to elevate himself, but once he's finished, listen to me, using them, pun intended, he will cast them away. And I bet right at this moment, you're thinking in your mind, yep, I know people just like that. Thank God I'm not like that. Well, let's check. I think we probably are. We're just blinded to it by our sin. And so let's, three examples. We could do more than that. But one, you go to the restaurant. And when the waiter or waitress messes up your order, do you see them as a real, genuine human being who has their own issues, their own problems? You don't know what's going on in their life. Do you see them as someone who's created in the image of God and loved by God? Or do you see them simply as a tool to get you your food? And if they don't do it right and on time the way you want, then you're gonna let them know about it. Or in the workplace, there's a million ways we could apply this. But maybe you're an employer. And because of the pressures on you for a promotion or to save some money, you know, for the bottom line, maximize profits, you're you're tempted to overwork and underpay your employees. And in that case. When we do that, our employees they are not real people created by god worthy of dignity and respect we are viewing them i mean our actions are revealing that we view them as tools we need them when we need them and when we don't we can throw them away as easily as a paper towel or maybe those of us who have kids i would never use my kids as a as a tool Do we use the behavior of our kids? To make others think what great parents they are. And so maybe perhaps our motivation for our children behaving. is actually what it says about us. Not like we want them to love and worship God. And we want them to worship and obey him. We want them to worship and enjoy him. And lead others to do the same. We want people to think things about us or their athletics or their academics or their artistic achievements. Do we use those as trophies for others to admire? It's part of our joy when our kids achieve some type of thing, not just the joy that they did that and and the joy of of seeing our kids achieve something, but the joy of thinking, oh, I'm going to get some acclaim now because my kids done something. And we use that to feed our parental ego. Listen, all these things I just described, I fully expect that to be the way the world operates because it's driven by selfish ambition. But that's not how the followers of Christ are to operate. This is not how we are to act. We are to live out a holy ambition that flows from a love of God and then a love of neighbor. And then we are bringing up the bronze. At best, we're third place. Love God, love our neighbors, and then ourselves. Now, who's my neighbor? We dealt with this last week. Jesus, everybody. But really, it's not so much the question of who is my neighbor, but whose neighbor am I? Right? He flips that around in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who am I neighboring? And so as you examine your life, do you use people as tools to prop up your ego, to prop up your business, to prop up your fill in the blank? And maybe it's not even conscious. Maybe it's a subconscious thing. Maybe the Lord's opening your eye. I, I do. Do we do that? Do you do that? Do I do that? Jesus never did that. It's a really unchristlike like thing to do. Jesus always saw the individual at the well. Right? At the individual. Like the woman at the well. Or the children who were coming to him. Or the paralytic who wanted healing. Or Zacchaeus, the tax collector who climbed a tree. Or Judas who betrayed him. Those who crucified him. And he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Do we use people as tools? Let's repent and turn. For those of us who claim to know Jesus, let's endeavor to be more like him. A mark of someone with selfish ambition is using people as tools. A second mark we see in this text is something we've already hit on. People who live with selfish ambition seek the praise of their own name. Okay, they seek the praise of their own name. It's all about them, right? Like Absalom here. He's stealing the hearts of the people of Israel. Literally, he's stealing glory, not just from David, but from God. Because again, David is God's man. And so listen, one of the best ways you can understand sin is just by focusing on the middle letter in the word sin. S-I-N. Making it all about I, making it all about me. What I want instead of what God wants done through my strength instead of God's strength, so that I get the glory, not Him. And folks, living like that, like I just described where it's all about you stealing glory from God, building your own kingdom, as a one heard one guy put it before, that's closer to Satan's heart than visiting a prostitute. Satan loves it when we live with selfish ambition. And so, friends, while we're processing this morning on selfish ambition, and do I seek the praise of my own name over the name of God? As you're processing that to really get at what's going on in your heart, don't ask yourself and don't focus on like how moral you live. Instead, ask Whose will am I living by? Mine or God's? Whose reputation am I most concerned with? Mine or God's? Whose glory am I striving to promote? Mine or God's? James 3 uh, that Sarah Parker read just a few minutes ago. Says this, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom, i.e., meekness is wise. But if you have bitter jealousy, and here's our word selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual. Look at the last word. Demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition, there's our word again, exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And so, friends, ultimately, selfish ambition, understand this, it will ultimately end in ruin. For some. Through selfish ambition, they will achieve great worldly success in this life and in this world for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And then they'll die and go to hell. Because they were all about themselves and not about God. And so for some, that is what the ultimate ruin will look like for them. It's a delayed ruin, but it's eternal. But for others, in God's grace, the ruin comes a little faster. It comes a little quicker. And we see that like verse 16 here in James 3 our lives where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every vile practice. And so in God's, and I want you to hear this, grace. He brings the ruin to your life a little faster to wake you up. And so, friends, is your life in disorder? And the world happens, I get that. And sometimes just things happen. But sometimes, God's trying to wake us up to something. And so if your world is in disorder, if, if vile practices have crept into your life, verse 16 again, well then you need to ask yourself, I need to ask myself, whose kingdom am I living for? Who is on the throne of my life? There's that old Sunday school teaching that in everybody's you know, life, there's a throne and a cross. And if Jesus is on the throne of your life, then you need to be on the cross. But if you're on the throne of your life, then Jesus has to be on the cross. Whose kingdom am I living for? Who is on the throne of my life? I mean, maybe there's some disorder going on in your life because God's being gracious to you and he's trying to get your attention. So in January, I started a new Bible reading plan. <clears throat> and I hope you guys all have. And just a quick word, if you haven't, start. It doesn't matter if you like make your days and check them off. Just keep going. Just keep going. But so just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Genesis chapter 11 and I read the story of uh, the Tower of Babel. Um, and it's a story of selfish ambition. So it's really short. It's only nine verses. Let me read it to you just so we can kind of get this in our mind. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as, a, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they uh, have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off. They left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So there's a lot of things we could say about that passage. But it really centers around the fact that they wanted to make a name for themselves. That's what the whole thing's about. They're not concerned with God. They're concerned with themselves. And what does God do? He frustrates their plans. Right? But notice, he doesn't tear down that tower. He doesn't remove their unfinished and broken tower, their idol. He doesn't remove it. Rather, he leaves it standing there, unfinished and broken. Right? And he could have let them just go on and finish building or whatever, but why did he? He came. To wake them up. He frustrates them to wake them up. And he leaves it standing. This broken tower. And so let me ask you. What are the broken towers in your life? Where have you tasted disappointment and frustration? You didn't achieve what you wanted to do. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you have an addiction that you're struggling with? Can't kick? Maybe you lost a job? Maybe you didn't achieve a major goal? Maybe you got caught smoking or cheating at school? Friends, sometimes these major disappointments in our life are God's grace waking us up to his Reality that we have departed from Him, and He's giving us mercy that appears like judgment now, so that we don't taste ultimate judgment then. And so what if we learned to think about the disappointments of our lives, the broken towers of our lives, towers that were intended to be monuments to our greatness, what if we instead start seeing them as monuments to God's grace in our lives? And so he leaves them up. He doesn't tear them down. He leaves them up so that we see them. And we learn to see them not as monuments of failure, but as monuments of grace. calling us to wake up and to live for his kingdom not our own and so ask yourself what am I living for what am I living for am I living with a holy ambition for God's glory or am I living with a selfish ambition for my glory when the rubber hits the road where does my loyalty lie am I all about me or am I about God Because friends, if you, while we want to live with a holy ambition for God's glory, it goes hand in hand with us actually achieving joy. Living for selfish ambition won't work. Living for a holy ambition will work. And here's why. For you to have any attempt at joy, you have to get over yourself. I have to get over myself if I am going to walk in joy. You have to get over yourself if you are going to walk with joy. Because the more we make ourselves the point, the more we will be enslaved to James 3.16. Disorder and vile practices. Because when it's all about you, then every word, every action or inaction, every look by someone is a personal comment about you. Because you are, I am the center of the universe. And so if you're the point and somebody cuts you off in traffic, that's because they hate you. But if you're not the point, they just didn't see you. When you're the point, it's ridiculous that you should have to wait in this long of a line. It's ridiculous that someone should mess up your order. You're the center of the universe. How dare they? Don't, Don't they know? And folks, it is enslaving and will make you miserable. And it's unbelievably sinful. And this is what happens when we make ourselves the point. And then we take that and we bring it into our marriage. Bring it into our parenting. We bring it into our workplace. We bring it into our friendship. And it wreaks havoc. It's all about me. They're all tools. But if you'll get over yourself, you'll have a better marriage. You'll be a better parent. You'll be a better worker. You'll be a better friend. You'll be a better church member. Because it's not about you. And you'll sleep better at night. And you'll just be happier. Because it's not about you. Now how do we learn to live this way? When the whole world is telling us that it is all about us. How do we find, number two in your notes, freedom from selfish ambition? Well, first of all, we look to Jesus, who's both our authority and our example. We look to the one who took the very lowest place so that he could be exalted to the highest place. Listen to Philippians 2. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit. He's saying if there's any affection and sympathy amongst you, if there's any little bit, then then at least complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do, verse 3, do nothing from, here's our word, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, so there's some level of looking to your own, but not just that, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. he. So he's already humbled by becoming a human, left the glories of heaven, humbled himself by becoming a man, Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Most humiliating way you can die. Stripped naked for all the world to see, suffering and bleeding out. Therefore, verse 9, God... And he did that for you and I. He didn't have to. Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is going to happen and we can bow now in joy or we can bow then in fear. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But look at how he lived here. Look at how Jesus lived his life. Verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He emptied himself. He lived for others. Though he's the king of glory, he came to serve and not be served. That's how we're to live. Humbly, like our Savior. But also, dear Christian, we find freedom from selfish ambition by remembering who we are, remembering our true identity, who we are in Christ. And so listen to the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You don't have to flip there. Listen, though, and write that verse down. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. He's not talking about an ethnicity. He's talking about the church, a people, a pe- the people of God. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, you are freed from selfish ambition by remembering who you are in Christ. And this is who you are chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. You've been redeemed by Him. You were created by Him. If you are a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, you've been redeemed by Him. You've been adopted into His family. And you are the son or the daughter of the King of kings and Lord of lords. So don't fool around with some measly, earthly selfish ambition, there is a global, universal, much bigger ambition you can be a part of. And that's what we're to live for. The wool gets pulled over our eyes so much and makes us so short-sighted. And we're praying today, Lord, lift that off of our eyes and let us see what we should be living for. And so stop defining yourself. By what you do. That's not who you are. Who you are, are these things. All right? You're not what you do. You're not what you've done. You're not what's been done to you. Those things do not define you. If you are a Christian, you are the son or the daughter of God. That's your identity. That's your identity. And friend, you are so loved. I just want my life to matter. I just want to matter to someone. You matter to God. I want my life to count for something. It counts for God. I want to be somebody. You are somebody to God. Created in His image. Adopted into His family. And doted on by a loving dad. And if we would grasp that, it would revolutionize our lives. And it would free us from the shackles of selfish ambition. There is joy, unspeakable, to be found in embracing our smallness and reveling in God's glory and bigness. There's a book that I picked up a couple years ago uh, at a T4G conference that's Together for the Gospel. It's a conference held every two years, and they have a huge book, book sale. And there's, I always try to pick up a couple books for myself. I've picked up books for, for Debbie before, picked up books for Sarah, and I try to pick up a book for all my kids. And a couple years ago, I picked up this book here, and it's called Fool Moon Rising F O O L. Okay, Fool moon rising. I'm going to close today just by reading it to you. I'll turn it around and we'll have story time. (laughs) Dear God, I heard a cosmic story and I wondered if it's true. The moon was stealing glory and this is what he'd do. He bragged each night that his great might could make the darkness flee. And like a kite, he scaled the heights and said, hey, look at me. The pompous moon would only croon the songs that praised his name. He hoped that soon the cosmic tunes would bring him greater fame. It's really strange, but he could change his shape throughout the year. His face would change, then rearrange, and sometimes disappear. He loved the thought that astronauts had danced across his face, and cosmonauts and monkey knots would visit him in space. He bragged that he could cause the sea to rise and swell each day. And then all could see how mightily he'd pull the waves away. He'd boast away and love to say, I am the greatest light. Until one day, a piercing ray showed him a shocking sight. He saw his pride and then he cried for all that he had done. For he had lied when he denied his light came from the sun. So now each night, a new delight is what he loves the most. Reflecting light with all his might, the sun is now his boast. And so God, I pray for grace each day to find the joy that's true in all my days In all my ways. In making much of you. Let's pray. Father free us from these shackles. And the blindness of selfish ambition. And open our eyes to the glory and the goodness. Of a holy ambition. Found in reveling in you. And knowing you. And remembering who you are in what you've done and who we are now in light of that. And let us see that there is a joy that is true. And it's not by making much of ourselves, but like the story said, making much of you. Lead us to that. Forgive us of our apathy and our hardness of heart and our blindness. And as a church, Lord, as a church, Lord, encourage us as a people to worship you with all of our heart and our mind and our strength and to love others as ourselves. For the praise of your glorious grace. Have thine own way Lord. Have thine own way. Now and always. In Jesus name.